You want to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 6 this morning. As you're doing so, I wonder whether or not you would be, your preference would be to be on a team or to watch a team. I, I don't know if you're watching college baseball right now, but it's the College World Series. And of course, I have to talk about it because my team is, is in it and, and we're doing well. And I didn't get to watch the game yesterday, but I got to see the highlights and it's just one of those things. And I love watching sports. I love the whole idea of team. And so when you're thinking about a team, or whether you're playing on a team or you're on a team at work or whatever, you're always faced with that question. Do I want to be on it or do I just want to kind of observe it? So this morning, if you had the preference or you had the privilege of figuring out whichever one you wanted to be on or watching, what would it be? What would the preference be for you? And you're probably going to respond by saying, well, what kind of team is it? I mean, if it's uh, the team where you're going to be SEAL Team 6 and you're going in to raid a terrorist encampment, you may not want to be on that team, but you'd like to watch it, right? Or if you're on the softball team and, and you're a softball player, you're probably thinking, I want to be on that team. We're playing for the league championship. We're, we're moving forward in the playoffs. I want to be on that. So it, it has everything to do with what the team is and what is being done. So it, it, if you want to make a lasting impact, if, if you want to see people's lives trans, transformed, would you prefer to be a participant on that team, or would you prefer to be a spectator watching that team? For me personally, in that scenario, I want to be on the team. In that scenario, I want to be a part of that team. I want to play a role alongside others that sees their lives transformed, made good, better through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning as we come into this next passage here in Luke chapter 6, we're seeing that the Lord has a team. And the Lord is calling people to this team. The Lord is equipping people for this team. The Lord is sending out these team members on his mission. And so in our walk through the Gospel of Luke, what we have seen, what we've been watching, is this right here unfolding. That God is calling people to himself, that God is equipping these people, and now he's going to turn and begin to send them out. If you remember, if you've been with us through this journey, through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has already announced the purpose and the mission of his work. In Luke chapter 4, he said this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus there in his hometown of Nazareth, standing there in that synagogue that day, announced his intentions. He began his work on his own. Announcing it and now working, traveling all throughout the towns of Galilee, we've seen Jesus preaching the message of the kingdom. We've seen Jesus healing the sick. We've seen Jesus liberating the oppressed and calling followers to himself. Already in this gospel, we have seen Jesus call Simon and Andrew to himself. We've seen him call James and John to himself. We've seen him call Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, to himself. Jesus has been recruiting these team members and the first five chapters of this gospel. Many others were called to him as well and are following the Lord on his team. You think about what a team is by definition. A team is greater than an individual. Teams can do more than one person can do. 
Now, Jesus, we know, is God the Son, and so we don't want to put Jesus, God the Son, in some sort of box and say, well, he couldn't do certain things, so we had to have team members. That's not the case at all, but Jesus is including people with him. He's including people on his team to carry out his work and his ministry here on this earth. And so this is a gracious imitation, and he's utilizing his followers in the carrying out of his mission, and he continues to do so today. You see, here at Red Lane, we talk about how we want to see people come to God, we want to see people grow in God, and then we want to see people go with God to others, using their spiritual giftedness, using their passions, using what God has equipped them with for the sake of his mission here and there. We want to serve in the body of Christ, we want to reach our neighbors with the gospel, and we want to go overseas in hard-to-reach places to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are part of his team. What we're seeing here as we work through the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is touching and transforming the lives of people. More and more people are joining him as a result. He he comes into a town and he preaches and he teaches and and people are drawn to that and he heals the sick and he, he casts out the demons of those who are oppressed and he just changes their lives and so they begin to follow him. Traveling with Jesus from place to place, they're watching him do miraculous things. Time has come now for others to join in this work. You see, the reason that the Lord is now going to begin to turn things over is because Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows that he's not always going to be with them physically. Now, we know the Great Commission where he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But that is not a physical, bodily statement. Jesus knows that he's going to Jerusalem. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. He's going to offer his life as a payment for sin. He's going to die, be placed in a tomb. Yes, three days later, rise from the dead. He's going to spend 40 days with his disciples, and then he's going to ascend to the Father. Jesus is not going to be with them always. But the work will continue, and the work will continue through his teammates who are going to carry on that work. You see, Jesus is going to continue to preach the kingdom. Jesus is going to continue to heal the sick. He's going to continue liberating those who are oppressed. He's going to continue calling people to himself, but he's going to do this through those who are on his team. He's going to do it through his followers. And so Jesus begins preparations for this by calling out what we're calling this morning 12 men. 12 men who will be apostles. 12 men who will lead this movement of the gospel. These 12 will get their first taste of active ministry in later chapters. In Luke chapter 9, we're going to see that Jesus will turn to those 12 and send them out in active ministry. But today, I want us to look at his calling of these 12 men. So take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 6, and let's just begin reading five verses there, beginning in verse 12. Luke says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." Jesus here, in these verses, called his disciples to himself. 
He called all of his disciples to himself. And from those 12, Luke tells us that he designated 12 of them to be apostles. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus made a distinction between those who followed him, those who were his disciples. All of them, as I said, were disciples. All of them were followers of Jesus. And that is exactly what a disciple is. It is one who follows a master, one who follows a teacher. It is one who learns from that master teacher. It is one who imitates the teacher. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. You are one who hears from the teacher. You are one who learns from the teacher. And you are one who is supposed to imitate that teacher. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we, like those who are called to Jesus in this passage, are disciples. And Jesus here takes these disciples who have been called to himself, and he selects and appoints 12 of them to be apostles. 12 of them to take on this special designation this designation, apostolos, is the term. It is used in the Gospels to specify the 12 disciples that he called out and selected to preach the message of the kingdom. But more than that, because the disciples were doing that, or will do that. They're also going to mimic, imitate his miracles through signs and wonders. They're going to preach the kingdom and prove the power of the kingdom through the miracles of signs and wonders. And so these are the men through whom the church will be established and built up. We move to Acts chapter 2, which is the prologue to this, this message or this book from Luke. And we see that it's the apostles who are teaching. It's the apostles who are leading this now new church. And all the believers are sitting around listening to their teaching, following their example, because they are the followers and the leaders of Jesus Christ, the ones who Jesus has appointed. So there are three aspects of this call of the 12 men. I want us to examine them and then learn some lessons that are offered here. As we look at the call of these 12 men, I want, to, want you to notice that the first aspect is this. It's an authoritative call. As Jesus calls these men and designates them as apostles, this is an authoritative call call upon their lives. And as we've read through Luke, we've seen that authority is a theme. It's a major theme that Luke is laying out for us. It's been a very important theme that we've seen. It's especially prominent in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so if you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, you'll see that it begins with the temptation of Satan. As Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, Satan is offering to Jesus authority. If you will do this, you'll have authority. If you'll do this, I'll give you riches. If you do this, people will follow you. So Satan is trying to tempt Jesus with authority. What Satan doesn't realize, what Satan is losing sight of, is that Jesus already has authority. Jesus already is the king of kings. And so authority is a major theme in this gospel in specifically these three chapters. We move on from there and we see that Jesus declared his authority there in Nazareth that I just read from. As Jesus stands in that synagogue and declares who he is and what he came to do, he demonstrates his authority. Even when the people in the synagogue, his own hometown folks, as they became enraged at what he said and the audacity to say something like that, they actually tried to push him off a cliff. 
When I preached this passage a few months ago, it was right after we got back from Israel. And so standing there on that precipice, standing there on that hillside with all the jagged rocks, you see what it would have been like for Jesus to be driven up to the top of the cliff. And if he had been cast down, how devastating that would have been. And yet Luke tells us that when they get to the top of the hill, Jesus just passes through them and went on his way. How did he do that? He has authority. He's not controlled by any of us. We move from there and we see that Jesus continued to demonstrate his authority by teaching with authority. People began to listen and hear what he said. And they said, no one teaches like this. None of the scribes, none of the Pharisees teach with such authority. Jesus had authority. He healed the sick and demonstrated authority over illness. He cast out demons, demonstrating authority over the demonic. He eats with sinners, demonstrating authority there that the sinfulness and the uncleanliness of those who have sin in their lives does not touch him because he has authority. And so this is a major theme in the Gospel of Luke. And so as he calls these men to himself with a special task, it is an authoritative call. And so what we see here is that this motif is peaking with the calling of the twelve. Luke has clearly expressed to us who Jesus is. There should be no question in our mind of who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and what Jesus wants to do in your life and in my life. You see, we've seen in the Bible that he is God the Son who possesses the throne of King David himself. He reigns over the house of Jacob forever. There's going to be no end to his kingdom, Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Luke goes on to tell us and clearly express that Jesus, as God the Son, has veiled his divinity by taking on humanity. He's placed the exercise of these divine attributes at the discretion of God the Father, and so that during this time, among other things, Jesus is not omniscient. He's, it seems here in this passage that he doesn't know all things. How could that be? He's veiled aspects of his divinity, but that does not take away from his authority. This is an authoritative call. You see, on his own, Jesus did not know, seemingly here, who to choose to carry out this important role of the apostles. And so he continued to pursue community with the Father, just as he had enjoyed all throughout eternity before entering time and space. So Jesus here in this passage, Luke tells us he retreats and he spends the entire night praying, communicating with the Father, like he had done at other times that we've already seen. Prayer for Jesus was highly important. It was everything. Even though he was the eternal son of God. Even though Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The one to whom everything is moving toward. He still needed time with the Father. Prayer and fellowship with the Father. He couldn't live his human life apart from dependent prayer. Dependent fellowship with the Father. His authority resided in the Father. For this reason, we read in John chapter 8, Jesus declaring this. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. The Lord's calling of the twelve was issued with authority from God the Father. That leads us to a second aspect, and that is this is an effectual call an effectual call. 
After a night of prayer and a night of fellowship with the Father, Jesus knew the Father's will. Jesus knew who the Father had selected to be these 12 men, these apostles, to carry out this specific task. This was an office and a role sovereignly placed on these 12 men. You see, Luke doesn't tell us anything about them lobbying for the position. Luke doesn't tell us that these men had a desire, an aspiration. They weren't seeking this position. But instead, these men were doing their thing, being disciples, following Jesus. But it's Jesus hearing from the Father, expressing that authority upon them, and effectually calling them into this role. What does that word effectual mean? It means that they had everything they needed to accomplish the task. It gave them the ability to effect what God has calling or was calling them to do. And so Jesus chose these men to serve in this special role, to be the extension of his ministry. In Luke chapter 9, we will see in coming weeks that he sends them out to do as he did, to preach and to heal. And as such, his call to them is this effectual call. They're going to go and do amazing things that blows their mind. How are they able to do that? Because they had authority? No. Because he gave them his authority, his power, his ability. They were equipped with the authority and power, with the resources needed to carry out those tasks and his mission. You see, their effectiveness was grounded in their fellowship with and obedience to the Lord. Jesus said this in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Here's the key. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's an effectual call. But apart from that effectual call and obedience to that call, obedience and and fellowship with him, there's nothing we can do. Mark emphasizes this effectual call to the mission and the apostolate in his gospel. He says this in Mark chapter 3, same passage, same story. He says, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. What's Mark telling us here? Mark is saying this, according to what we see in this passage, there are two parts to their call, and the second is intimately related to the first. They were first called to be with Jesus. First called to be with Jesus, and secondly, they were to act on behalf of Jesus. How in the world were the disciples and these apostles able and supposed to act on behalf of Jesus? It's because they've been with Jesus. What has Jesus been doing with the Father? He acts on behalf of the Father. He represents the Father's authority. How? Why? It's because he spent time with the Father. The disciples and the apostles are to do the same. That's the effectual side of this calling. You see, their ability to effectively carry out the mission was directly related to their fellowship with the Lord. They're too weak to carry out the mission. I mean, how could we as Christians, I mean, how can we as human beings, even as Christians right here in this world, how can we carry out the mission of God? We can't do it, but God can do it through us. That's what we see in the text here. These 12 men called to this specific task were able to do it because God effectually called them to himself. And this is the storyline of scripture, is it not? This is what God always does amongst his people. If you've read lately in the book of Judges, specifically Judges chapter 7, you'll read of a man named Gideon. You ever read that story of Gideon? Gideon in the 300? Learned that in Sunday school when you were a little kid. You, talk, you, you learn about how he had 300 men and they broke clay pots and they had torches and they yelled real loud and, and everyone got scared and run against each other and they won the battle. 
What you don't know about Gideon, perhaps, is that Gideon himself says, I'm from the least tribe in Israel. I'm from Manasseh. And of that, I'm of the least, the smallest, weakest clan, the smallest family. In other words, what Gideon is saying to the Lord when the Lord approaches him and says, I can't do it. I am the wrong person for this job. In fact, as he's there threshing wheat, he's doing so in the vat you would actually uh, uh, do the stuff for making wine, separating the, the, the juice from the grape. He's doing that because he's scared of the Midianites who have conquered the people of Israel at this time. So this was a fearful individual, and yet God calls him to a task. And so he answers the call. And so 32,000 people rally around Gideon and say, we're going to go fight the Midianites. And God says, no, 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 that's too many people. So they 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 release a bunch of people, those who are scared, and it goes down to 10,000. God says, that's too many people. I want you to go to the creek. I want you to have everybody get a drink of water. And based upon what we read is based upon how each man drank from the stream, determined whether or not they would be a part of this fighting force. So 32,000 warriors is trimmed to 10,000 warriors that is then trimmed to 300 warriors. And God says, now you're ready. The man from the weakest tribe of the weakest family who's scared to death to do anything. If you read this story, he's constantly putting fleeces and stuff out. Lord, if this is your calling, this year, he's constantly asking for God to, to uh, prove that he's the man. Now has an army of 300, and he's told to go against Midian. It's 750 to 1. That's the ratio there. For every soldier that Gideon has, the Midianites have 750. Not really good odds. And yet God uses this weakness to bring about a great miracle. The battle is won. We see that story in David. We see that story in, in, in Moses. We see that story in Jeremiah. We see that story all throughout the Bible. Why? Because God's calling on our lives is an effectual calling. It has nothing to do with you and I outside of the fact that we're in fellowship with the Father and we're trusting in his ability. And so these 12 men are called to serve. There's a third aspect to this call, and it's an unexpected call. This is, there's an un, unexpected aspect to this call. What do I mean by that is this. Jesus called ordinary men to serve him and to carry out his mission. We saw that in the story I just uh, told you about Gideon. Here in this story, here in this calling of these 12 men to be apostles, we see the same thing. They're just ordinary men. Every one of them, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, is from a small town, a small village out in the countryside somewhere. Judas Iscariot is probably the only one that's from the city. He's the only one from Jerusalem area. And we may make the argument, well, there, there's the reason. We know why he disobeyed the Lord and betrayed him. He's not a country boy like us Palatinians, right? Right? He, he doesn't understand what it means to be in the country. And so these are just ordinary guys. Four of them, specifically, we know, are fishermen. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. John 21 would lead us to believe that possibly three others were professional fishermen as well. Then we know that there is the one who's a tax collector. That's Levi, or Matthew, as he's later called. The other four, we don't know anything about. We don't know what they did. We don't know where they came from, really. Uh, we just know that they were more than likely just common people from the countryside. None of these men were famous. None of these men were wealthy. You may say, well, Levi was probably wealthy, and you may be right to that. He was a tax collector. He probably had some wealth. But if you know his conversion story, he gave up that wealth to follow Jesus. He laid it all behind. 
He righted his wrongs. He was a man committed to the Lord. And so none of these men are famous. None of them are wealthy. None of them came from the, the, the scribe or the priestly line. None of them was an elder leader in the nation of Israel. But instead, as Acts chapter 4 tells us, these are uneducated common men, and God called them for this special task. So we see in these 12 apostles... That the authoritative and the effectual call of God is also an unexpected call. Jesus worked in and Jesus worked through these men in such a powerful way that his life and ministry could and would continue after he was gone. Acts chapter 17, we learned this about the early church at that point. Many things had happened, many years had gone by, but because of the apostles' faithfulness to God, their commitment to, to be in fellowship with Him, their commitment to follow His Word, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, that the church, the believers, the followers of Christ had turned the world upside down. How'd they do that? God was working through His people. Common men and women called to this Life of fellowship with the Lord had turned the world upside down. Paul magnifies this unexpected calling of the week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There is an unexpected aspect to this calling upon their life. Why is that? Archant Hughes offers his thoughts. He says, one of the supreme glories of God's call is that our weakness is the opportunity for his power. Our weakness is the opportunity for his power. He says, our ordinariness makes room for his extraordinariness. Think about that. Our just ordinary aspect of who we are gives ground for God to do extraordinary things through us. You see, we're not superhuman. In fact, we have no super abilities whatsoever. We're pretty much a dud, right? We're pretty much lifeless. In fact, we're spiritually lifeless. So we can't do anything for God. And yet he calls us to himself. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, he calls us to live with him and to walk with him and allow him to move in our lives in such a way that we can do things that would blow our minds if we were told on the front end. All because it's an effectual, unexpected, authoritative call upon our lives. Today, if we were assembling a team to carry out the mission of the gospel, what kind of person would you choose? What kind of person would you select and recruit to be on your team? Better question is, what kind of people does Jesus choose and recruit? You see, the man Jesus drafted that we see here in this passage, they were nothing but common and ordinary men. A little rough around the collar. Right? Peter's the guy that would say stuff off the cuff all the time. He would say things that would get him in trouble. Anybody get, get themselves in trouble with that? Yeah, a lot of us are rough. We look at the lives of the apostles and those who are following Jesus. Many times they're doubtful. You see, they walked with Jesus for those years during his life and ministry. They saw him do miracles. They heard his teaching. They, they, they experienced his, his embrace upon their lives. And yet when Jesus goes to the cross, they're dumbfounded by it all. And when all that was taking place, they're scattering. 
Peter's even denying Jesus. And so what we know of these apostles on this side of Pentecost is that they were rough and doubtful and didn't have what it took to make it happen. But when Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, got a hold of their lives, everything changed. Jesus recruited to himself men who would follow him. And so we draw from this passage that the ability of the one called, listen to this, is not nearly as important as the power of the one who calls. It's not about you, it's about him. It's not about what you can do or cannot do. It's about him. You know, we talk about uh, serving the Lord. I, I mentioned earlier what our discipleship process steps are. We want people to come to God. We want them to come into relationship with God's church. And we want to see people grow in God. And we want them to turn and now go with God to others and use their gifts to serve. It's not about what you can do. It's about what you allow the Lord to do through you in service and in mission to his calling. These men were just ordinary, rough Let's put it in terms we can understand. Rednecks. Right? Peter's the redneck of the redneck. If he was in today's world, he would drive a jacked-up truck, pull in a bass boat, and probably have chewing tobacco in his mouth. No offense to anybody that drives that and has that in your garage and has that in your lip right now. Hopefully that's not happening. Later, right? What are some lessons? I've got to get off myself off that. I'm going to get in trouble. Three lessons, and I'll land the plane. Here's what we learn. Number one, prayerful fellowship with the Father is essential to living out your calling as a believer. You want God to work in and through you? Learn to walk with him. Be prayerful in your fellowship with him. You see, Jesus modeled for us that if we want to live out God's calling in our lives, it's necessary to get away for times of private prayer. What do you see Jesus doing? Three times in the gospel so far, we've seen Jesus doing just this, retreating for times of prayer. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Every day, you need to have a, a moment, a season of some length to retreat and be with the Lord in private prayer. Prayerful fellowship. Man, if you're not having that, if you're not experiencing that, then you're not in the position to live out your calling as a believer. You see, Jesus went a step further than just retreating in private prayer. He said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you're with me, if you're abiding in me, as you understand that I'm the vine, if you're abiding in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing, right? It's more than just saying I need to pray. It's the understanding that if I don't pray, then anything that I do accomplish is for naught. Jesus both modeled and instructed us on how to live out God's calling. If the eternal Son of God couldn't accomplish what God the Father had sent him to do without being in prayerful fellowship with the Father, then how in the world can we as his followers expect to do anything lasting, eternal, and significant? We should not. We need prayerful fellowship. And so that is essential to living out your calling as a believer. Number two, obedience to the Father's directives is essential to living out your calling as a believer. Jesus here selected these 12 apostles from the disciples at the direction of the Father. He's been praying. He's been seeking the Father's will, his, the Father's direction. He did nothing on his own. Jesus wasn't just lone ranger shooting from the hip. He only did what the Father directed him to do. And so he models for us perfect submission to the will of God and the experience of his blessing and favor upon our life. If we will obey his directives, we can experience or expect to experience his goodness and his direction 
for us. Here's the kicker with all that. Obedience at times will make us look kind of funny to the people around us. And we're fearful of that, right? We want to blend in with everyone. But if you're going to walk with God, or you're going to be serious about your faith, if you're going to be serious about this book that we say we believe, that we say is the word of God, and it's authoritative over our lives, and it's not, it doesn't contain some truth or mostly truth, it is the truth of God. If we really believe this, then we really should live this. And if we're doing that, it's going to make us look weird and sound weird, and we're not going to always fit in in every situation. As a church, if we actually stand on this and say, all right, this is the word of God, and we're going to do exactly what it says, and we're not going to do anything that it forbids, then we're going to look funny in the culture and the community in which we reside. Some may say we're fanatical. Some may say we're old school. Some may say that we have lost our marbles. But it doesn't matter what others say. What matters is what the Lord says. And disciples are only concerned with what the Lord thinks about them. Number three, the third lesson is trusting the Father's wisdom is essential to living out your calling as a, Lord, as a believer. The Lord knows what it's best, right? He knows what's best for our lives. His wisdom is flawless. His wisdom is complete. What if Jesus, if he wasn't so committed to, number one, being prayerful in fellowship with the Father during his life, if he wasn't committed to obeying what the Father says, what do you th think Jesus would have been doing in that moment where the Father is saying, I want you to choose these 12? And Jesus would have looked at the Father and says, you want those 12? Simon and Andrew? He's going to cuss later on. You know, I'm going to go to the cross, and he's going to be out there cussing to a little teenage girl. You want that guy to be an apostle? Andrew, yeah, I can get Andrew. He's going to introduce his brother to Jesus. But Simon? John and James? They're going to ask me to call, if, if I want them to call thunder down from heaven and kind of scorch people on the face of the earth here. You want them they would rather kill a person than share the gospel with a person. These are not the men that Jesus would have picked. They're not the men you and I would have picked. But Jesus was listening to the Father. And he trusted the Father's wisdom in that. And if we're going to live a life that's in congruence to the Father's calling on us, we need to be committed to the Father's wisdom. On paper, these men did not meet the standard. They were not the best choices, but from a heaven's perspective, heavenly speaking, they were the only choice. And so today as believers, we trust God's wisdom in his callings and his actions. We recognize his authoritative, effectual, and often unexpected activity in our lives. I don't know if you've looked at yourself in the mirror lately, but you're probably not other people's choice for whatever you're doing, right? Many times I look, and you may think this as well, and I'm trying to be... Um, uh, humble from a fictitious standpoint, but I, many times I look and think about what God's called me to do. I'm like, you're the guy that really struggled in college to do a speech and communications class. You're the guy that's the introvert that doesn't really like to be in the limelight, and, and yet this is your calling on my life? I would have picked someone else. I could give you 10 other people that would be more effective from my perspective, and yet God called me to this role, to lead this church and other churches that I've led. It's not humanly it's not human wisdom. It's not wisdom from our perspective, but it's wisdom from his perspective. And so we trust in that. The responsibility of the Christ follower is not to call the shots, but it's simply to accept and carry out what the Lord has said. 
We're like Moses many times. When Moses was called to go back to Egypt, he wrestled with that. He, he argued with that. In fact, the Bible tells us that God got angry with him. I just imagine Moses standing there arguing with the Lord, and as he do, does such, the Lord is showing himself in a burning bush, and so I just think that thing got hotter and hotter and hotter. As Moses is sat there and say, well, I, I can't speak. Well, I, if I'm God in that situation, I'm like, dude, you were, you, raised, you were raised in Pharaoh's house. You have the best education money can buy in the world today, and you can't communicate? Give me a better excuse than that. And yet that's what he did. He never thought he was equipped for the task. And maybe that's something we need to all realize, that we're not equipped for the task, but not, oh, not argue about it, but just trust the wisdom and the goodness of God. So here's what I want to ask you this morning. If we're going to walk with the Lord, we will experience the sweetness of what it looks like to operate in that space. But how do we get there? We've got to approach our calling the way these men did. Here's some questions I want you to wrestle with. How similar to Jesus' example is your life? In other words, do you have prayerful fellowship? Are you obeying the Lord's direction in your life? Are you trusting his wisdom? What's your life look like? There's many times that God will call us to things and we're like, no, no, that can't be, the, that, that can't be what God's w will is for my life. And we just reject it and reject it and reject it when we should just rest in it. God, I don't understand how this may happen, but you've put it on my heart. You've confirmed it through others. You've confirmed it through scripture. And the best I can do is just do it. Help me to do it. These 12 men, Acts 17, 6, helped turn the world upside down. What would happen in your circle if you just said yes to Jesus? Would he use you to turn that circle upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do you have to do to get to that place? Let's pray. Father, this morning... I don't know about anyone else, but as I read this passage, I'm blown away by who was called to this task. We have the privilege of knowing the rest of the story. We have the privilege of not just sitting in this moment and, and watching this, this scene. We have the privilege of knowing what happened in the next couple years, and we know what happened in the years after that, where the church was birthed, and how you used these men in such powerful ways. But Lord, if we were just to sit right here in this moment, knowing what little we know about these men, rough, common people, we would have said, surely these are not the men. And yet Jesus, after spending time with the Father, calls them to himself. And God, for us this morning, said in this room watching online, we're not called to be apostles. That was a one-time deal, special men called for a special purpose with special gifts. But we are called to be disciples. We are called to follow you, to love you, to obey you, to be used by you. And so, Father, I, I pray that we would just wrestle with that thought. How similar is our lives and how we walk out our calling to what Jesus demonstrates in this passage. Do we spend time in prayerful fellowship? 
Are we willing to obey what your word says and what we sense your spirit leading us to do? And in that, are we trusting your wisdom? It may not always make sense. On paper, it doesn't line up. And yet, we just trust you. Lord, I pray this morning that you'd help us to wrestle with that. God, I know that in my wife and I's journey over the years, there's been a lot of decisions that didn't make sense. But we sent your calling, we sent your leadership. Things were confirmed by others in our lives, and we said yes. Though we didn't know how the whole thing was going to work out, we just said yes. And Lord, I can testify that in every situation, you went before us, and you provided, and you protected, and you blessed, and God, you used. We thank you for that. Cross this room. Lord, help us to say yes to the calling of God upon our lives. This morning, there may be some that the first call they need to answer is the call to relationship. And Lord, we're talking about disciples. Lord, we're not a disciple until we understand our sinfulness and the separation sin brings in our life and condemnation it brings. We understand that Jesus is God the Son who paid the penalty experience the wrath, the punishment of our sin upon himself so that we can be forgiven. Well, that, re- that requires confession of sin and faith into what Jesus has done, trusting him as Lord. And so, Lord, if there's folks this morning who have never come to that place in their life, my prayer is that we move into this time of response as we sing about the hope and the life that we have in Jesus. That, Father, they would find hope in life in Jesus. So for those who need Jesus as Lord and Savior, call them to yourself. Lord, for those who are in Christ, help us to walk out that calling. Prayerful fellowship, obedience, and simple trust. We pray this in the powerful, wonderful, gracious name of Jesus.